0: Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We will uh, be reading uh, John 11, verses 1 through 44, which you may remember was the same sermon text that we read last week. It's because we're looking at the same story. We we began looking at the raising of Lazarus last week, but there's so much in here that we're we're looking at it again uh, this week. Before we read uh, that text, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and the hope that it brings. Uh, We thank you ultimately for the hope of the resurrection, and we pray that you would help us to come to better understand that hope this morning. We pray that you would... Feed us on your word and feed us on your son, Jesus, that we would see him in his glory, that we would marvel and worship and believe and rest in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she sent and met him. and let him go. When was the last time you were watching TV and you were moved emotionally? Maybe you cheered at a touchdown or wept at a heroic gesture or simply averted your eyes from some travesty. Uh, maybe it wasn't a TV show or a movie or a game. Maybe it was a book or a sunset or winning a board game. I don't know. Whatever gets you excited. I suspect there is something that moves you in life, either to shout or weep for joy. Now, I know emotions are fickle. They're unpredictable. We can't quite control them, though we do perhaps train them. But I wonder, uh, think about the last time you shouted for joy, when was the last time you shouted for joy when you heard the gospel? Why do touchdowns move us more than the cross of Jesus? I'm not asking that question to judge or condemn or guilt. It's just a real question in my mind. Uh, for me, it's, it's stories, movies, narratives, right? A good story will get me every time. Why not the greatest story ever told? When I started seminary, the the then dean of students at, at Westminster warned us about the danger of becoming too familiar with spiritual things. The danger is you begin to treat them as ordinary, everyday, common things. You hear the story again and again, and it loses its power, or at least it seems to in your mind. As one whose profession it is to be familiar with the gospel of grace, this terrifies me. But it's not just an occupational hazard for pastors. It's a danger for everyone who has ever heard the gospel. And I think it's a particular danger as we come to this story this morning. John 11 is a fantastic story. It should stretch your imagination. It should should be on the edge of unbelievable. It should either make you awestruck or incredulous. Your response should either be, that's absurd, or that's amazing. In John 11, Jesus claims to be life, whatever that means. And then he raises someone from the dead. It's either absurd or it's amazing. And one of our problems when we come to stories like this is, is, is actually shared with some of the people in the story. We are not looking for resurrection. We're not looking for life that transcends death. We are not looking for life eternal. We are looking for life in this age, in the world as we know it. And so the promises of life of the age to come go over our heads. And so here's the the exhortation as we're reading this passage. Here's the exhortation of the passage. Stop seeking life in this age. Believe the promises of life in Jesus because you have seen Jesus' power over death itself. So stop seeking life in the things of this world Believe in the promises of life in Jesus, and both because you have seen Jesus' power over death itself. Uh, Again, this is our second time through the Lazarus story. We're going to skip over uh, many details that we touched on last week. So if you're wondering, why didn't he talk about this? Maybe go back and uh, listen to the sermon from last week, and then you'll get the rest of the story. But this week, we begin with one stop seeking life in this age. What is the problem with looking to this age, this world, our present circumstances, to find life and happiness and wholeness? What's wrong with that? The world in which we live is good, after all. God made it good. There are a million things to take in. God made taste buds and nostrils, sight and sound and touch, and then an endless variety of matter and material to delight our senses. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4:4, everything God created is good. The psalmist praises God in Psalm 104, saying, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Every aspect of creation is there for our good and for our joy. So what is the problem with looking to this age to find life? Well, there are a couple of problems. The first is God never intended for us to find life in the things of this present age. They are good and they are good gifts, but they are not the source of life. The things of this age are good gifts of our Father who is the giver of every good gift and who himself is the source of life. Life is not found in his gifts. Rather, they are meant to point us to him. But second, and this is the problem highlighted for us in our passage, since the entrance of sin and death into the world, death overshadows everything. The writer of Ecclesiastes laments that the same event happens to everyone, good or bad, wise or foolish, religious or irreligious, Democrat or Republican, black or white, American or international, death comes upon everyone. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, had died. Verse 14. The take of his family and friends is that this is the worst thing that could have happened. And in a sense, they're right. Death, scripture says, is the last great enemy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if death has the last word, Christians are to be pitied. And so Jesus' friend, Lazarus, has died. Jesus seems to have allowed it to happen. He knew Lazarus was sick, but he waited, verse 6. He waited two days before heading to the town of Bethany. When he finally shows up, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus has missed the funeral. And Lazarus' sister Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's sister Mary says the exact same thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you can hear the the anguish in their collective voice, perhaps even a bit of accusation. Where were you? What took you so long? Why didn't you come sooner? Death has come and taken our brother. It's too late now, Jesus. It's too late. The crowds thought the same thing. In verse 37, they say of Jesus, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? But now death has come. Jesus didn't keep this man from dying. Death has had the last word, or so they think. There is both an inevitability and a hopelessness to death. It, it's, it's fascinating to me uh, that, uh, and I'm, I'm not a big sports fan, but I know some of you are, right? But it's fascinating to me that 300 is considered a good batting average in baseball. That's 30%, right? Students, uh, just imagine if a 30% on a test were considered a good grade, right? That would be pretty nice. Or employees, what if, what if you only had to complete your work 30% of the time, right? How would your boss feel about that? Well, what is death's average? It's 100%. Now, there are some important and notable exceptions, which we could talk about, but if you round at all, it's still 100%. Even Lazarus, right here, who will be raised from the dead in just a minute, as far as we know, he died again. He was, in a sense, only resuscitated. He did not, on this day, enter into resurrection life. He only received an extension of his earthly life. Death reigns in Adam, Paul says, meaning all of Adam's children die, meaning the the first man, Adam, and all of his children, meaning all men and all women everywhere, die. There is an inevitability to death in the Scriptures. And there is a hopelessness to it. Notice again, Martha and Mary, if you had been here, or the bystanders, could he not have kept this man alive? But it's too late. Lazarus is dead. King David at one point had a son who was very sick, and David mourned and fasted for his son. But when his son died, David got up, washed his face, and ate. His servants didn't understand. Why did David mourn before his son died and stop mourning afterward? And David says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Essentially, David says there's no more reason to entreat God now, it's too late. My son is dead. Death is the end. Uh, We are one of the few cultures in the world, I gather, that doesn't get this. Uh, We do our best to never have to see death and dying. That uh, We talk about people living in our hearts or in our memories. Afterward, we, we have celebrations of life rather than funerals. We refuse to honestly face death. Stop seeking life in an age characterized by death. Yes, there are good things to enjoy by all means. Enjoy God's good gifts, but do not mistake them for life because they are all brought to an end by death. Now, if you're young, you may be thinking, sure, but that's a long way off. Perhaps. You you don't know what a day may bring, Scripture would say. Disaster, sickness, and disease do not discriminate. They come on all kinds of people. The hopelessness of death is captured well in verse 39 of our passage. Jesus tells the bystanders to roll away the stone of Lazarus' tomb. And Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. He's dead. His body is decaying. His flesh will stink of rot. There is nothing to be done. There is an inevitability and an irreversibility to death. If we don't believe that, we will miss what is so amazing in this story. So first, stop seeking life in this age that is characterized by death. Second, believe the promise of life in Jesus. Once we feel the inevitability and irreversibility of death, we can hear the radical promise of life for what it is. Lazarus dies, Jesus comes, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, but she goes on. She says in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's an interesting comment because what did Martha expect? In verse 39, she seems to think there is no point in rolling away the stone. But here she expressed faith. I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is why Jesus responds differently to Martha than he does with Mary. Mary weeps and Jesus weeps with her. But Martha engages, and so Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Now, this is actually an intentionally vague statement by Jesus. And Martha responds rightly in verse 24. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And God had taught his people in the Old Testament that there is a resurrection coming a resurrection of the just and the unjust, some to glory, some to punishment on the last day. Martha, being a good theologian, says, I know, I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And and already, by the way, let me ask, do you believe in the resurrection on the last day? Do you believe the audacious biblical teaching that there will come a day when all people will rise from the dead and face judgment? That's what the Bible teaches That's what Christianity teaches. To deny that is to reject Christianity. That teaching is important for many reasons. For one, it means that there will come a day when justice will come, when wrongs will be righted, when injustice and sadness and tears will be undone. Now, Jesus could at this point simply say to Martha, you got it, that's right, Lazarus will rise on the last day. But he doesn't say that. What Martha believes is true, but it is not complete. And so Jesus says these amazing words in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's what Jesus wants Martha to know. That the resurrection is not a doctrine, it's a person Your hope is not in a doctrine, it is in a person. There is not some impersonal thing out there that is simply going to happen one day. Jesus is the resurrection. He will bring it about, it is found in him. Martha, your hope should be in the resurrection, but that means, Jesus is saying, your hope should be in me. I am the resurrection and the life. The hopes of Israel are centered on a person, And the hopes of Christianity are centered on a person, not on a doctrine, but on a person. Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. Now, those uh, two words, resurrection and life, could be taken as one and the same thing. Jesus could be saying, I am the resurrection life, if they go together. Uh, But uh, one scholar, D.A. Carson, suggests they are not one thing, but By resurrection, Jesus is referring to the resurrection on the last day. And by life, Jesus is referring to the life that he gives right now, the eternal life that he keeps talking about in the Gospel of John that he gives presently to those who believe. And so Jesus goes on and says, Whoever believes, uh, not whoever believes in a doctrine... But whoever, Jesus says, believes in me. And then Jesus makes two statements, which Carson believes explain what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so first in verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's a future verb there. Whoever believes, though he die, yet he will come to life. He will in the future live again. Jesus is the resurrection. And Jesus adds in verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This lives is present. Everyone who lives now, everyone who has the life that I give, everyone who is presently experiencing eternal life and believing in me, that one will never die. Which is not to say that your body might not perish, but that regardless of what happens to your body, your life will continue even until your body is raised on the last day. Jesus is the resurrection. If you believe in him, you will rise from the dead on the last day. Jesus is the life. If you believe in him, you will gain a kind of life right now that will never end, that death itself cannot stop. Now, at this point, Jesus confronts Martha, which is something I don't think any one of us would have done. Her brother is dead. She is in a period of mourning, but Jesus wants her to be clear about where her hope lies. So he says, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that the one who believes in me will rise again? Do you believe that the one who believes in me has a life that death cannot take away? Martha, do you believe this? And Martha responds with what is really an incredible testimony in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Her faith is centered on a person, a person whom God sent into the world, a person who is God in the flesh, God the Son, a person who came as the Messiah to free us not just from Rome but from all oppression beginning with death. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you think life is found in this age, that that brings restlessness when we try to grasp after this life, when we strive and grab and steal or work ourselves to the bone trying to get life. It brings anxiety when life doesn't seem to be going our way. It brings despair if things don't work out. Martha at the tomb should mourn, but she could despair. She doesn't. She believes in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? If you believe the promises of Jesus, you can stop grasping after life in this age. Stop trying to find life in money and food and sex. Stop trying to build the perfect family and prioritizing success at work above everything else. Rather, if you believe the promise of life in Jesus, you can rest. Rest secure in the life that is found in him. But of course, that brings up a question, which is how do we know? How do we know that Jesus can come through? How do we know he can fulfill his promise? Which brings us to our next point. So, point one stop seeking life in this age. Point two believe in the promise of life in Jesus. And point three see Jesus' power over death. Jesus backs up his words with actions. He claims to be the resurrection and the life and then he goes to a dead man's tomb, has them roll away the stone and commands him to come out. But first Jesus prays. He says in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I can only guess Jesus means heard his tears and his groaning throughout this ordeal because those are the first words that he says. And then he says in verse 42, I knew that you always hear me But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wants his hearers to know that what he is about to do is because of his special relationship to the Father. The Father sent the Son into the world to accomplish his work. And what is that work? Jesus told us back in John 6, John 6, 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my Father that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus came to do the work of giving life. And so he stands before the dead man's tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. In verse 44, the man who had died came out His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus came out. It was a command to a dead man. Isn't that funny? A command to a dead man. Hebrews 11.3, we read that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke something out of nothing. God spoke reality as we know it into existence. God says, let there be light, and there is light. God speaks into life. And here Jesus speaks Lazarus into life. The command, Lazarus, come forth, enables Lazarus to come forth. Back in John 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed already from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus goes on, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has granted him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. One day Jesus will come with the clouds and he will say, not Lazarus come out, but simply come out. And all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And yet Jesus speaks today already. He's speaking right now. He speaks through his word. He speaks in the gospel. He speaks in the preaching of the gospel. And when those who are dead in sin hear the voice of the Son of God, they live. It doesn't matter that we have no power in ourselves. It doesn't matter that we are dead in trespasses and sins. As scripture says, as God's word created life in the beginning, as Jesus' word created new life in Lazarus, so God's word, the gospel of Jesus, continues to create life today in you and me. Paul says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ is what enables us to hear and believe. Jesus' miracle with Lazarus was amazing. We should be impressed or incredulous. But that miracle was not the most impressive miracle of Jesus. As far as we know, Lazarus died again. John chapter 12 tells us there was a plot to kill Lazarus because he was proof of Jesus' power. Now I assume, and it is an assumption, that Lazarus is not walking the earth today. He was, as theologians put it, not resurrected, properly speaking, only resuscitated. He did not receive the resurrection life of the last day. He just received more of this present life until either he was killed by the chief priests or died of old age. But Jesus, too, would taste death and come back from the grave. That is why he came. That is why the Father sent him, that he might die for sin, for you and for me, and having died for sin, He was buried in a tomb and a stone was rolled in front. But on the third day, an angel and an earthquake rolled the stone away. Not so Jesus could come out. He was already gone. No, the stone was rolled away to prove that Jesus had risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. But he rose, Paul tells us in Romans 6, never to die again. Jesus was a righteous man who died for sinners. But having died for sinners, death no longer had any right to hold him down. What Jesus received and has to offer is not just resuscitation, but resurrection. Not more of this life, but a different kind of life. A new order. You can have that life now by faith and you can experience it fully on the last day at the resurrection of the just. Where are you seeking life in this age? What things in the world do you think will make you happy and whole if only I can get this if only I have that if only I can achieve this then I'll be happy and then I'll be whole and then my life will be complete then everything will work out well besides the fact that this world was never meant to be the source of life death puts an end to all things and shows them for what they really are stop seeking life in this age see Jesus power over death not just in the raising of Lazarus But in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the power of death has been defeated. And believe the promise of life in him, eternal life now and resurrection life to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus, that he is the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Help us to believe that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.